Welcome back, Bike Club listeners. My name is Antonio Fabrero. I am the founder and CEO of AdSep LLC and today's host of the Bike Club podcast. With me today, I have a special guest, Marilyn Landis of Basic Business Concepts, to talk about different strategies around raising capital um, and organizing your finances when you, whenever you start a new business or you might be an early stage startup company. So thanks for listening and stay tuned. Listeners, welcome back. Uh, today, I have with me special guest Marilyn Landis. Um, before I kind of let her introduce herself, I just want to give a little background on how we've sort of met. Uh, whenever I started AdSap, my uncle actually introduced me to Marilyn, and he was like, "You got to meet her. Uh, you're starting a new business. You have, you know, you're getting things off the ground, but you got to get your finances in order." And so he's like, hey, "You got to talk to Marilyn, and she has been super helpful. Uh, not only her, but all everyone at her company." And so um, I'm just going to hand the mic over to her and have her introduce herself. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Marilyn Landis, like you, I'm also the founder of my company and also the CEO. What I had discovered were a lot of really bright business people, great ideas, great things they were doing, but often finance wasn't their area of expertise. And it isn't taught a whole lot anymore. Many times we learn algebra in school, but we don't learn savings and budgets. So bright people just don't get that background. So fast forward um, 20 plus years, we've got a team of 18, and we are in 10 major cities across the United States, and we provide financial services backup for companies, uh, often referred to as a CFO or chief financial officer, which is a strategic critical thinking piece. So to your point about the things we talked about talking about, it's the whole financial structure that helps a company to stand up and to sustain its growth. Most people don't even think about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think one of the, you know, just speaking from my experience, one of the lessons I learned early on from working with you is just like learning how to manage cash flow. Uh, I remember when I first came to you and I had uh, talked to one of your associates, I was like, my biggest thing is I don't know what I can and cannot afford. <laughs> you know, I have, I have money coming in, we have contracts, we have invoices going out, but I really don't know like where's, what, where the money's going or like what I can afford. And it was like, that was one of the, to quote your company name, the basic business concept I didn't have a grasp on. And so, you know, uh, you know, I think, you know, just to kind of reiterate, you've been super helpful to me okay. and in, in my business. So I appreciate it. Well, maybe a visual will help some of the people that are listening to this when we're talking about cash flow. If you think about cash as the water that flows through a business, and you said it's hard to visualize it when you have the company, it's easy if you go out and buy raw material Make a cake. Let's keep it easy. Go out and buy the, the ingredients. You bake the cake. You sell the cake. You take the money and go buy more materials to bake another cake. That's easy. Right. What when you've got 100 of those circling all different types and stages where they're going? How do you keep track of all that? So you've got the period in which you're building something. That's work in process. You've got to wait till you get paid. Most people don't pay you cash anymore. Right. Even if they use a credit card, you may wait seven days to get paid. So you have to wait to get paid. And then you might have some of the people you deal with that you buy your raw materials from or your services might be willing to get 30 days to get paid. So how do you sort that all out when you've got, if you're lucky enough, hundreds of these that right. are buzzing around at all different stages? So what you look at is, well, on average, and it's a math equation that's easy enough to do. That's what we did for you. Right. But on average, how often do I get paid? Let's say it's 30 days. Let's keep the math easy. And let's say it takes you about 30 days to build your product. 
Anytime you're buying things, maybe you're paying for some subcontractors or some other people to help you. So 30 days to build it, we're incurring some cost. 30 days to get paid, that's 60 days. If you don't have anybody who's of your vendors, your suppliers or anybody else willing to wait 30 days, you've got to cover 60 days worth of cost. Right. All right. Maybe you've got a few that give you some. So overall, you get like maybe 10. Now you've got 50 days you've got to cover. So now you figure out your average cost per day, and that's how much cash you have to have rolling through your system. So if you think about more customers added to that, the pipe gets longer. And if any of that slows down, like you got a great account, you agree to let them pay you in 45 days instead of 30, that pipe just got bigger around. So mentally, if you can picture how that works, you've got a pipe full of water and it takes more water to fill it. So that's part of those calculations we did with you by knowing what your product was going to be, who you were going to selling it to, how you expected to get paid, and how much cash we had to anticipate that you were going to need in your cycle to keep it running. Right, right, yeah. Um, and it, the way you explained it sounds super simple, but you know it, it does get complicated. So like having tools and working with someone like you mm-hmm. and your team to kind of help manage that is it's been super helpful for my business. So. Again, I, I can't thank you enough. And to anyone listening, I like highly recommend that you give Marilyn and her team a call if you're just starting a new business because learning how to manage that cash flow early on is, is crucial. Very Absolutely. Crucial. But uh, yeah, so to kind of go off of that, a lot of our clients and people who kind of listen to our show, uh, they're usually early stage startup companies or small to medium sized businesses. Uh, that's usually who we service. And specifically with the startup companies or new businesses, when they come to us, one of the first questions we, we get after we kind of walk them through, hey, this is the scope of work for your project, for your app, for your website, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, I can't afford that. How do I go about affording that? And <laughs> nine out of the 10, I'm like, you got to talk to Marilyn. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, if, if you could just kind of give some advice or insights into like, you know, I'm a new business, I'm a startup company, and I maybe I don't want to go the traditional route of getting a, a, a VC or a, you know, an angel investor, how can I get money uh, into my business to start and kind of get things off the ground? If I may, let me put it, you know me, as I like to have bookends. Sure. Let's look at what the, the opposites of this are, right? One of them you can go out, and this is what you often hear about in the market, go do a major capital raise, a Series A or a Series B, and right. we're going to get all this money, and we're going to raise a million dollars and hire all these high-powered people, and we're going to go take off. And you hope your idea works, <laughs> all right? And in most cases, you won't sell it to anybody at that point because you haven't thought it through enough yet. And you're not prepared to answer the questions they're going to be asking you. If you're going out, when I say investment-grade investors, you have to be ready to answer the tough questions. The other end is you simply say, I'm going to grow all with my own cash. I got a little bit of money I put aside. I'll sell a couple products, have a little bit of money from that. Well, maybe you can't grow fast enough to fit your market. So between those two are a lot of different ways to go. And first thing you have to have is a plan. What am I going to sell? How long is it going to take me to provide that service or to make that product? What am I going to need? Who's going to pay me? Who's my market going to be? Too often I've seen people who race off to get even friends and family investors involved to get them involved when they didn't need to. Because their product will sell so quickly. It takes such a short period from having it to selling it and getting paid. They could actually self-fund. It's a timing difference, not a long-term. Let me explain that. When you're going out to get an investor, you've got a couple of things you have to accept, whether it's friends, family, or a third-party investor. One, they're going to own a piece of your company. Right. You're married to them. So you better like them. 
Fair. All right. <laughs> Very fair. All right. And the divorce laws are much more complicated <laughs> for investors than they are for marriage. Um, the second piece of that is they're going to think they can tell you how to run the company. And Greg, who you work with on my team, his line is always, if a VC or a private equity guy walks in the room, they always are the most the smartest person in the room. And if you don't think so, they're going to tell you that. <laughs> All right. And the reason they're buying your company or buying into it is they think they can run it better than you can. Right. So unless you're ready to give up that piece, that may not be the route. You may eventually want to get there. They always say having a percentage of a big is much better than having a small. Okay. But it's, that's down the road. But even before you get friends and family involved, they're the last one you want to go to and say, oops, that was a bad idea. Right. So you want to walk through this a little bit and see what it's going to take to grow it out. And that's one, one of the things, first things you need to do is say, let's project out. How fast do I think it's going to take me? It's different in every in markets. People say to me, well, Marilyn, how do, what's an average? There is no average. If you're in commercial real estate, you're probably looking at six months from the time you start until you get your first sale. All right. If you're selling cookies, you might get a sale within minutes of opening your table. All right. It really depends. There's no right or wrong on that. So the cash that has to go in to flow for that, then how do you raise it? And do you raise it by coming out of your own savings? Friends and family give you a loan. And let's talk about the difference, if I may, between debt and equity. Please, please. Uh, Equity is patient capital. They have a long-term goal to get repaid. So they're not going to be hammering you for payment immediately. They don't want, like, stock, a dividend, or a distribution. They're going to wait. But if your company doesn't have what's called a liquidation event, which a point at which you're going to sell the company, somebody's going to acquire it, and all those shares turn into big money, then why would they invest? They're never going to get taken out right. at a higher premium. All right. Many people say, well, I want to give equity to my employees. They're going to be so excited. No. <laughs> if it's a small private company that isn't traded, it's totally what, what I mean by illiquid. It can't be turned into cash. Right. Absolutely. So the fact that they got their raise in equity that they can't turn into cash is actually a demotivator rather than a motivator. So you have to think about those things when you're thinking about equity. I've had restaurants come to me typically, uh, and, and when I was saying, no, you don't want an, equ- you don't want an investor. And, well, why not? My friend has an investor. I said, you don't generate enough profit to pay the investor and pay yourself, all right? Some industries are just too small in their margin unless they're going to become a huge huge, huge conglomerate. Now, the other thing is debt. Debt doesn't have those same restrictions on you. They don't get any equity ownership, but they expect to get repaid. And they often have an early paid in 30 days. Maybe you get six months, but they want to be repaid. So at that point, what you had mentioned earlier, you really have to know what cash you're going to generate and when you're going to generate it. But that might be a good option. And there are more kinds of debt than just a traditional, like a car loan. There are ones that might lend you money just to buy your inventory. Right. And they don't have to get paid to the inventory sales. Or you get your first ever big, big order, and you can borrow against that purchase order. Sure. And that's just money to execute on that, and then it's paid back. Then there's a hybrid in between that many early-stage companies will go for, and a lot of my clients have done this, and it's called a convertible note. And it's going out to somebody who's interested in your company and says, if you'll give me 50000 100000 whatever the number is, We will agree, we won't pay you interest, because obviously we're trying to grow the company, but we'll add the interest onto the note. So 100,000, and then each month we add the interest. So at some point when it can convert, you either get paid, which you originally gave me in principal, plus your interest, or you can take the principal, original amount, plus the interest, and convert that into equity. 
with a formula we've predetermined. So what that gives everybody the option to do is, I think you're going to be a bazillionaire. Yeah, I want the equity. And I'll wait another couple years for your liquidation event. Or, nah, I think you're as big as you're going to get. It's not going to grow anymore. Start paying me back on the note. So it's a good in-between. Interesting. So on that last part there with Mm -hmm. the, what's it called? Convertible note. Convertible note. So I'm just curious. Are there, I'm assuming there's regulations behind that. So like uh, how easy is it for a new business to kind of do something like that? Do you need, is there a lot of like legal paperwork behind that? Actually, there's no regulation around it. Oh, really? Yeah. It's dictated by the document, by two things. One, the legal document that the attorney would draft and that your note holder is willing to sign. So it's two sets of attorneys. All right. The second thing is there are certain norms within the industry. And if you don't follow those norms, I have a client out on the West Coast and his prior CFO did some very unconventional convertible notes. Hmm. And now that we're trying to straighten out his investors, it's giving him him and his investors a lot of heartburn. And we had to hire an attorney to try to clean that up and even it out. Not because there was anything legally wrong with the note. It was just so non-standard for the convertible note market that everybody got nervous with them. Gotcha. And so I guess... Obviously, it's unconventional, but are you starting to see more unconventional notes and things like that when people are trying to raise money here? Oh, I've seen all kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, Convertible notes are something that have been around a long time. A lot of people don't think about them uh, because too many times – we have another term a lot of startup companies hear about are accelerators and incubators. All right. And the accelerators are great for getting you all revved up. (laughs) All right. But like any medicine, there's side effects. And I've seen so many folks come out of an accelerator all revved up, and they know they've got to be really big, and they've got to do all these great things, and they're going to go out and get all of this money. But nobody made sure there was gas in the gas tank or oil in the engine. Right. And they crash and burn. (laughs) All right? They just crash and burn. I've worked with a couple where we rescued them just before they fell off the ledge, and we kind of pulled them back. So there was too much of the economic development money went in. Now, she did get some grants. This is a really cool. She's Her business is doing great. That's awesome. But she, there are some cool grants out there. And you had asked me about that once before. It depends on the industry. It's not like there's a long litany of grants you can get. But if you're developing something, for example, if anybody listening to this is really in the tech space, high tech where they think the government might be interested in their product, the government has a program called SBIR. Phase one pays you to prove your concept. Hmm. Phase two pays you to turn it into a working model. Phase three moves it into production. We have a client who's going through that with a revolutionary new break. It's got a lot of quirky accounting around it. It's after all the government, but it's grant. It's nothing he has to pay back. And it's paid for some very extensive research he otherwise could not have afforded to do. Hmm. Investors weren't ready to come in yet because it was so experimental, so revolutionary, nobody believed it could be done. Hmm. It's now going to go into production for the Marines and the Army. That's, but it, that's really he wouldn't have gotten that money otherwise. And then there are a lot of these competitions where, and this one client of mine where she's been successful, has been about five or six pitch competitions and probably together cobbled together 100000 in grants. Wow. All right. Now, it took time and energy on her part. But she had a great mission, and she's got a presence in front of a camera, and it worked. But you have to weigh those. What is it worth your time and effort, and is it necessary? Right. So... That's a really interesting point. And we have talked before in the past about grants. And so, you know, in my head, when I think of a grant, okay, it's like free money. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, uh, you know, and what I mean by that is how we had talked earlier. Right. 
no exchange of equity, no like interest rate to pay back. It's almost too good to be true. So right. like as a new business, why wouldn't you want a grant? Like like if you can find one, wouldn't you want to take it? There's like, only two reasons that you would want to, that you have to pause and consider. One, is it worth your effort to do it? Mm-hmm. If you're busy developing everything you have to do for that grant, are you taking time away from selling your product that would have raised almost as much money? Gotcha. Okay. The second piece is how can you use that money? I've had people say, hey, I've got this grant. You know, I'm over here building this great technology, and I've got this grant that will let me do, uh, get out there and sell food. Why would you want to sell food? <laughs> All right. Um, it's t- but I'm, that's, I'm using something graphic so you right. can picture it. But right. there's a thing that's subtly. Is this really worth your time? To do that, this particular one, it depended on her money. The use of the money had to go through a channel by selling more to grocery stores. Nothing wrong with that, except that's not our highest profit line. So that same time and effort would have been better with the line she had if okay. she had a better profit margin. Okay. Okay, so that's the only reason not to take advantage of them when they're out there. Interesting. So, so I guess there's more time involved in kind of achieving those goals. Well, it's the same with the crowdfunding. Um, that's a wonderful piece that's evolved when it first came out. And it, this is not the Kickstarter kind of thing where people are just helping you. You're going to give right. them a lunch or a dinner or a product. But you're actually going out to raise the same as you would its equity. But they're permitting it to be done through online platforms. But think about that. You're pitching on a video online when there's hundreds of you that people can pick from. Right. All right. I've known many people who have had a very unsuccessful crowdfunding pitch because they didn't take the time to have a professional video and have this and have this and have this and have that. And so they didn't get what they wanted out of it. So it takes time to do that. And you have to have something that people will identify with because they're not going to give you four hours to explain to them what, what you're doing. Right. It has to be something that they – so certain ones, it's great. There's no reason not to do it. They've even changed some of the rules to make it easier for you to roll from a crowdfunding into a traditional capital raise later. At first, that was very awkward and hard to do. For technical reasons, I won't go into unless somebody likes the SEC. But <laughs> trust me, they've made it easier. That's cool. Okay. So – and I guess um, for our listeners, just to kind of clarify that a little bit, crowdfunding mm-hmm. – I think most people when they hear crowdfunding, they think of, like you said, Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. But that's not what you're talking about. You're mm-hmm. talking about things like um, uh, what is the There's company? Firehouse. There's um, several other names of companies that actually do this. And you're actually, the difference is, Antonino, you could decide that you want to raise money for your company. And you go under, let's keep this easy. Everybody knows public stock. Right. Those are the laws for stock, for equity. But there are exceptions where companies don't have to go public. There's very specific rules to be able to do that so that you don't have to have all the public filings. Well, one of those is you can only do to what's called an accredited investor. Okay. So it can't be your family unless they've got a certain net worth and a certain income, so on and so on and so forth. Okay. That being said, you may not know enough of those people in your neighborhood. In fact, they've done demographic studies. There aren't enough of them in the Midwest. Interesting. All right. They tend to reside on the coasts. So you don't know enough of those people. So crowdfunding allows you to pitch across the internet to people you wouldn't otherwise ever get to meet. They still have to be accredited. They don't even have to be an accredited investor if they're coming in under certain rules under crowdfunding. Interesting. They can just be somebody who wants to put in $100, $1,000. There's also another really cool option that's available. It's founded here in Pittsburgh by a guy who's a fifth-generation banker. The group is called Honeycomb. And if any of your listeners are going to be a business-to-business uh, type thing, 
what they will do is come in and assess what you need, and you get a loan. But it goes out to a group of people, and unlike equity, you're allowed to advertise. So you can reach out. Let's say one of my clients did this who was a restaurant, a high-end restaurant. So he sent out to all the people who loved his restaurant and said, you get a chance to help me out. Some of them put in $100, some of them put in 1000 Honeycomb consolidates all that into one loan that my client could then pay back. As he's paying the loan back, they got their piece of their loan and their interest back. But you've got a built-in cheering section right there. They want to see you succeed. They're going to come into your restaurant because they know the more they patronize you, the more you can pay the loan back. Honeycomb has now expanded. They started and founded Pittsburgh, and they've done some cool things, and they've expanded out beyond. That's cool. Yeah, I have heard about that. I think you mentioned them, them to me before. And so if we can talk about that a little bit, too. So that loan... How like this honeycomb then like if I'm an investor mm-hmm. in that that loan per se, uh, are they acting like the bank that's going to go out and make sure that you get that money back, or is there like what they're doing is they're doing uh, in some ways now it's not a bank, right? And they're asking the people who are putting money in. They've done a little bit. They've looked at what you publish, right? They've made some decision that that's what they want to do, but they obviously are, have looked at the company itself and feel comfortable. Doesn't mean that company can't fail. It's like anything else. You sure. Sure. Right, um, but they've looked at that, and they're also monitoring the company, and they're making sure the money comes in on time, and all the sort of things that you don't have to do. Gotcha. And then you get your piece back. Cool. It's very interesting. And so, we take a step back there. Um, the other company you mentioned, you said Firestone. I think it's Firehouse. Firehouse. Used to be. Yeah, they were. They would do, and they will be. Uh, they're a platform for traditional crowdfunding that's going out and selling equity. And you, they'll work with you. Some of them are better than others at helping you do your video if you don't have somebody to do your video for you right. or help you get your financials in order, what you have to do and so forth so that you can pitch. Because they, they can't buy you. They don't buy any of this. There's simply that platform on the web where people can go look at 100 or 150 options gotcha. and decide where they want to put their money. So for our listeners that are listening to these like Honeycomb and uh Firehouse, these platforms, do you have to apply or is it just like you sign up online and you're in? You have to apply online. Okay. You have to go in online, submit information to them. They have a responsibility, particularly the crowdfunding ones. Well, so does does Honeycomb because there's some banking regulations that wrap around them as well. Okay. So they have to make sure, for example, uh, I was asked to help a company and I wasn't sure about this company. I was still kind of doing some due diligence of my own when they got turned down and I I hope I have the right name of the company, but had it turned down. Yeah. Because that company was checking all the phone numbers that were listed. And when they rang one of those and it didn't answer, it was disconnected. Oh, man. They rejected the application. Wow. Okay. All right. They have responsibility to prove that you're legitimate. You're, you're not a front for somebody else. You represent it correctly. They don't say that the financials are right. They haven't done any due diligence on that or that the product works. They're just verifying that you are, in fact, a legitimate company. You're not some company out of some hidden terrorist group that's come out and emerged. Right, right. Okay, cool. So that, that gives the investors that peace of mind as well. That's right. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's that's big. And it's, it's funny that you bring this up. So I, I think I briefly talked to you about this a couple months ago, but at ATSAP, we had this idea for what we're calling the pasta fund. Mm-hmm. And we see a bunch of startup companies with different tech ideas, software ideas coming mm-hmm. through the door. And some of them have really cool ideas. And, you know, we kind of had this idea of, like, okay, if we had this, like, fund where, you know, we would, um, you know, kind of invest in some of the clients mm-hmm. or starts with, hey, these are solid ideas. Right. Take a percent of equity um, and develop the, the platform for them and help them grow and maintain it going forward. And what I found out after talking to, 
to you, my attorney, and all these different things is the whole like accredited investor thing is like it, it's not. I do. I was shocked when I found out like I can't just go to my parents and be like, hey, you know, I'm starting this fund. You want to give me ten thousand right. dollars? It's like they're like there is a ton of legal paperwork that you have to do this and that, and I was shocked. I didn't. I didn't realize you know because you hear these stories, you know these these crazy success stories of like, hey, you know, this company out of California raised, you know, $5 million right. and now they're a success over him. Like, you know, I'm like, oh, like, that's crazy. Like, how'd they do that? You know, and it's like, I thought it can't be that hard. But when you really look into it, um, it's not as easy as I thought it was. Um, well, you just gave the case study and why. First of all, angel investing started. Mm-hmm. And this started for people who wanted to put a little bit of money in and they knew they were the first in. Therefore, they'd be the absolute last out and that they were probably going to lose two-thirds of what they put in, right. but they were willing to take these chances and do that. But as issues have evolved, it's made it harder and harder for them. As a result, more of them have moved. The term is upstream. Instead of that early stage idea, they're now investing after you've proved you've had some sales. Right. If anybody's watched Shark Tank, well, how many sales have you had and you haven't had enough? Well, the angel level used to be at the beginning. Right. All right? Now, there's been a lot of pressure. The SEC is the Securities and Exchange Commission, the U.S. government that regulates equity. And there's been a lot of pressure on them to try. And when I would get angry, I've testified a few times about this. When I get frustrated, I'm like, darn it, why can't they do what you're saying? Right? Why can't they do this? And they say, Marilyn, you have to understand. It was founded in 1930 after the stock market crashed and the, com- the world had one of the greatest falling out of finance. Right. It's only been within the last couple of years that it even thought that it had to protect the company or help the company. 1930 to the present, its sole purpose was to protect the investor to the point where the investor is protected from being his own stupidity, (laughs) (laughs) right? They just a couple years ago got uh, an ombudsman, which is somebody who represents, for the first time there's somebody within the SEC representing companies. Interesting. And she's doing some really cool things and she's starting to speak to some of the things we talked about. And that was one of the pushes in the beginning for crowdfunding because it said, why do you have to be this high upper end net worth individual to get to invest? Why can't the average person right. put some money in? Now, people do. Our attorneys will tell you you can't, but people do. Mm-hmm. It's only if you get reviewed and audited and, you know, all right. those kind of things. But that's the whole idea behind friends and family. You make this connection. That somehow, we're really friends and family. Right. But that was the whole idea behind crowdfunding is you might meet somebody that you've collaborated with online for two or three years. You're not family. You really won't say you're friends, but you probably trust that person more than some of your own family. Mm-hmm. All right. And crowdfunding was meant to help you reach that network in a different way. So there's some of that that you can avoid the rules. Interesting. But it's called, but it's called the uh, most common one you'll hear. We'll talk about Reg D. That's the one clause within you want to. Watch paint dry. Listen to SEC attorneys <laughs> explain SEC law, right? I've sat through those. It's gruesome. But many people will talk about Reg D. But there are other exemptions within the SEC code that some people with smaller capital raises in a more local community can take advantage of with less restrictions. Mm-hmm.